Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is our fourth sermon in our series from the third chapter of Colossians on Christ-centered living. Christ-centered living. We looked at our identity in Christ in the first four verses. And then from verses 5 to 11, living out of that identity as resurrected believers in Christ, we learned that we need to fight sin, to put off the old life ways of sin and ungodliness. And then we learned from verses 12 to 14 that not only is this life in Jesus a life of putting off what should no longer define us, but it is a life of putting on. What Jesus is is calling us into, that being a Christian doesn't just mean there's certain things you can't do or you don't do, but it means we've been invited to this life of imitating the character of Christ. Now, maybe some of us would think that that that's the end of the story. That, that, That remembering my identity in Jesus and living out my identity in Jesus basically is confined to what I do with sin and what I do with Jesus' character. But it's not the end. Paul has a lot more to say. It turns out that Christ-centered living isn't just about my life of dealing with sin and, and, and putting on godliness. There's more to it than that. And the more to it involves not only the church in verses 15 to 17, where we're going to look at tonight, but it even involves the home. So so tonight what we're going to do is this. We're going to look at verses 15 through 17 and and think about this question. What is a Christ-centered church? The title of my message tonight is Christ and Our Church Life. Let's, Let's begin with verse 17. Paul tells the Colossians, And let the peace of God... Rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Christ and our church life. Christ and our church life. As as we look at this text and what it means for us today, I want to begin with a question. Have you ever thought of God's grace as something threatening? Has that ever struck you? When you think about God being gracious, giving us what we don't deserve, like forgiving us and reconciling us to God and taking hell and giving heaven instead, have you ever thought of that? As threatening? I think it kind of is. One one person came to that conclusion. 
Tim Keller tells a story of when he was planning a church in New York City. And a woman uh, that came from a, a slightly different religious background where good works were emphasized, sat through one of the services at, at the church that he was starting, and the whole experience terrified her. Sitting through a Sunday morning worship service. She began to realize that, that Keller's church was preaching this, this gospel or this good news of grace where God saves us without any works of our own. And she told him why she could never come back. She said, if I was saved by my good works, I would be like a taxpayer with rights. But... If I am a sinner saved by grace, there is nothing that God cannot ask of me. Do you see what she was getting at? She's right, you know. Grace is threatening because if grace is true and if grace is real and if if the good news is really true, that means if we accept it, it threatens our autonomy. Because everything we have as believers was given to us by someone else. And there is nothing in the world, if the gospel is true, and if Jesus has saved me like he has said he is going to save me, and if Jesus has saved you like he said he's going to save you, there is nothing that would be too much for him to ask of you to do. So the thought of being in this community of people that all owe Jesus everything, this community, this, this family of people that couldn't tell Jesus no, It frightened her. What is it like to be in a community of people that owe Jesus everything? What is it like to be in a community of people that have all given up their rights because of the goodness of God? That's what it's like to be in a church centered around Jesus. A Christ-centered church. Paul has been calling his readers to put off sin. We had the list of vices, if you remember. Verses 5 to 11. And then put on godliness in verses 12 to 14. But Paul is not suggesting that growing in the character of Jesus, that growing as a Christian is is a private matter. You don't grow as a Christian. Don't be offended. I don't grow as a Christian. We grow as Christians. Together. A Christianity that is only concerned with one person's relationship to Jesus, but that doesn't affect how that person treats the rest of God's family, treats the rest of the church that he or she is a part of. That's a Christianity that Paul would not have understood. No, you see, the Colossians need to be living Christ-centered lives. But here's what we discover in these three verses. Christ-centered living should be especially lived out in Christ-centered community. 
Christ-centered living should be especially lived out in Christ-centered community. So, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to be a part of a Christ-centered community? Well, it's going to involve three things. In verse 15, Paul is going to teach that that a Christ-centered church is ruled by the peace of Christ. Then in verse 16, we learn that it is that a Christ-centered church is indwelled by the message of Christ. And then in verse 17, we learn that everything done in that church is motivated by the name of Christ. So so let's look at verse, uh, verse 15 together. Glance down at your Bibles. Notice that Paul says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. When we think of Jesus' peace, or peace that comes to us from Christ, or the peace of God, we, maybe one of the first images we think of is our, uh, this internal rest we have, this overwhelming confidence that everything between me and God is okay. And in one way, that's what the peace of God is, isn't it? Romans 5.1, I think, says it beautifully, that because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of internal peace that, that we often think about when we think of the peace of Jesus. But that is not the extent of the peace that we are given as Christians. Now, we are given internal peace. I don't want to skip over that or, or uh, make that sound like a small thing because it's not. Peace with God is incredible. We could have no peace with God outside of Jesus. There is nothing we can do in our sin and in our weakness and in our fallenness to become at peace with God. There's no good works we could do to earn that. We only get that through grace, and that is amazing. But internal peace with God is not the extent of Christian peace. And it's, it's possible that in the church at, at Colossae, things are very turbulent. And we get that idea because of all the things they're being challenged with. There is an environment there that, that was probably like spiritual one-upmanship. Which cult in the mountain are you a part of? Which night meetings in the cave do you go to? Which mystery religion have you joined? Well, I've done all of these things. What about you? Or you're just still believing in Jesus and, and meeting with the Christians on Sunday? That's all you have? I mean, you get the idea that it was very competitive because pagan religion is very competitive. Because it's all based on what you do, what you have to bring to God. So Paul doesn't tell them, I just want you guys to have an inner sense of peace. I want you to feel at peace. No. He says, I want peace, singular, to rule in your hearts, Plural. The, the word he uses is brabuo, which was a metaphor that um, came from the context of athletic games. The, the competition would be going on, and what we would call an umpire or a brabuo would come in and end the competition and say, this person is the winner, this person is the loser. We still have umpires today. Sometimes they're not very popular. If you've ever been to like a little league game. The umpire comes in to do this. There's a conflict going on. There's competition going on. And the umpire uh, puts himself in the situation and ends the conflict and ends the competition. And Paul is giving this word picture to say this is what God's peace should do. Not in your heart, but in your hearts. 
the peace of God is, should, ought to mediate your relationships with each other. When there is competition, when there is tension, when there is conflict, the peace of God should have the last say and end the competition, end the conflict. So that this peace isn't just internal. But no, Paul is saying, let the peace of God, singular, rule in your hearts, plural. So that they don't just have peace with God, but that they have peace with each other. And he expands on that at the end of verse 15. They're called, uh, they're called to this peace in their one body. So he's not talking about them as individuals. He's talking about them as a body, as a group. And this group, this church in Colossae, collectively is called to peace with each other. That's the picture coming into their minds. And Paul is telling them this is what needs to characterize them. Peace needs to be the umpire of their conflicts. Peace needs to put the fights to rest. So that when the Colossian pagans, who have all kinds of conflict that goes on and on in their own communities, when the Colossian pagans look at the church at Colossae, they see people getting along. Not because they're all alike. Not because they all have the same kind of job or because they all make the same money or because they're all from the same ethnicity. But when the pagans look at the church of Colossae, they look at them and they say, man, these people are just able to live at peace and we have no explanation as to why that is. We can't figure out what makes them get along. It's like there's something supernatural intervening. Their conflicts stay under control. They they get along with each other. They're able to resolve these things that we can't resolve with our family, with our neighbors. What's going on in this church? And did you see how he ended this first instruction? Be thankful. Gratitude. This is what God has done for you, so get along with each other. So a Christ-centered church is ruled by the peace of Christ. Paul doesn't say, let's just be very clear. Paul doesn't say a Christ-centered church won't have conflict. Paul doesn't say if you're a Christian and you get into a really good church, no one will ever rub you the wrong way. That there will never be tension. You'll never disagree with anyone. No, Paul doesn't say that. These churches in the first century that were started by apostles, they had conflict. But they had peace the peace of Christ that mediated the conflict. The second characteristic is this. A Christ-centered church is indwelled by the word of Christ. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When you think about the word of Christ, we may be thinking of, you may be thinking of either the gospel, the message about Christ, or you may be thinking of the word, the Bible. So what is Paul saying? Should we be indwelled with scripture or with the message about Jesus? Well, yes, both. As Christians, uh, the Colossians are called to be, to be full of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, but also they're called to be full of the scripture. We find the gospel in the scriptures and all the scriptures point to the gospel. It's the message about Jesus. It needs to fill them. It needs to indwell them, or in other words, make its home in them, in their soul. Not just something they've heard, not just something they they repeat mindlessly, or not just something they put on a pillowcase, but it's a message that's at home in their soul, and it flows out of their person. 
And notice, not only does it need to dwell in them, but in all wisdom. Wisdom uh, is the the capacity to know something and then to act accordingly. So he's not just saying memorize a bunch of verses, although that's good. He's not just saying know all the books of the Bible, although that's good. But it needs to dwell in you with wisdom. In in other words, it gives you a skill set. You know how to go out and behave and live and think because of what you're doing with this message. Let it dwell in you richly. He's telling them to be full of it. Have you ever met a Christian that was full of it? Have you been full of it? Has anyone accused you of that? Maybe your spouse? Believers are called to be full of it, full of the message about Jesus, full of the scriptures. He's not just saying they should quote it or recite it or be familiar with it, but they need to be full of it so it changes how they live. Now, now what flows out of that? What happens when they are indwelt by the message about Jesus? Well, look what follows. Teaching and warning each other and singing. Teaching and warning and singing. If you look at the the pastoral letters, it's very clear that the pastors, elders, bishops have a greater responsibility to study and teach the Bible. But while pastors lead in the teaching, that doesn't mean that, that Christians, that church members aren't teaching each other too. We are called to teach each other. And the Colossians were called to teach each other. Now, that that doesn't necessarily mean that if you have a couple over from the church that you get out like a lesson plan and go through it line by line with them. I mean, they may feel a little bit uncomfortable. They may not come back. But we're supposed to be teaching each other. That's what they were being called to do. And and, and here's the thing. Being Being a church member, being a Christian in this body with other Christians, it means that your engagement with the Bible doesn't end with you knowing more about the Bible. There's a lot of people that know a lot, a lot about the Bible that aren't doing anything with it and aren't helping people. No, it, it leads to you teaching and warning others. That's the natural outflow of being indwelt by the word of Christ is that you keep helping other people with the Bible. If the Colossians let the word dwell in them, they won't be able to keep it in them. If it's dwelling in them, it won't stay in them. Because as these Colossian Christians bump up into situations and other people, what's going to spill out is scripture. Sometimes in the form of teaching. Hey, have you thought about this? Sometimes in the form of warning. Hey, don't go, don't go that way. Don't do that. Indwelt by the scripture will lead to teaching and warning. And not only that, but singing. Singing. There is a direct connection, a direct correlation by how willing you are to participate in congregational music and how much the Bible is at home in your heart. Corporate music is not just something that popped into churches in the last hundred years. Christians have been singing ever since there have been Christians. Because corporate music is a one another command in Scripture. Singing confined to the private doesn't edify others. It won't teach others. 
singing that's only confined to others will actually be performance. Because he says not only do they need to be singing to each other, but with grace in their hearts to the Lord. To the Lord. Our singing is done to the Lord, but in, when, as we do it to the Lord, it ends up helping each other too. A Christ-centered church is indwelled by the word of Christ. That means that the message is at home in our hearts and it comes out in teaching and warning and, and singing. Notice verse 17. Lastly, a Christ-centered church is motivated by the name of Christ. He tells them, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when you think about the kind of motivations that the Colossians were facing with all these false religions, they would have looked very, very different, but they all had one thing in common. It's the same thing that all false religions have in common. Self-interest. The, the reason the people in the mystery religions in Colossae are doing what they are doing is so they can better themselves. So they can be protected from the demons that they think ran the world. So they can be protected from, from gods or a god that might want to destroy them. It was all based on self-interest. The reason they wanted to climb the ranks in the different cults was because of self-interest. Paul is, is not... Just adjusting the dial a little bit here. It's a total 180. He says everything that you do as, as a church, in your gatherings, everything you do as a body, as a family, it all needs to have this at the bottom of it. That you're doing it for the name of Jesus. This is your, your one glorious motivation that we're doing this together so we can make much of Jesus as a church in ways that we wouldn't be able to make much of Jesus on our own. That's the motivation that's bringing them together, the motivation that brings us together, the name of Christ. Christ-centered living should be especially lived out in Christ-centered community. Now, it's possible that you're, you're not a Christian, and uh, when I gave that illustration about the woman in New York City, you thought, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know if I want to step into, a, step into this new kind of life where I owe God everything and I don't have control over my life anymore. You may be thinking, I don't really want to know if I want to take this step of faith. If it would mean I would owe everything to someone outside of me, that I, I couldn't take credit anymore for the, for the goodness of my life. That I, that I couldn't take credit anymore for what I've built. There's something very real, very true about that. Grace does threaten our autonomy. Being a Christian and then taking the next step of commit and being a part of a church... It will radically change how you live. As Christians, we shouldn't be dishonest about that. We should tell people to count the cost. It will change things. And you may think, if, if God really is this gracious, if the gospel is really true, then joining a group of people that are all about Jesus would, would mess up everything about me. But here's what you need to know. It is totally and utterly worth it. 
It's worth it to owe everything to Jesus. It's worth it to live the kind of life based on what he gives us. It is totally worth it for him to be able to ask anything he wants of us. The gift is so good, even with the fine print, it's still worth it to believe in Jesus. And it's worth it to be part of a Christian family. And it's possible that you're listening to this or here and you're, you are a Christian. You have believed in Jesus. You've received that grace. But you've tried to live your Christian life as an individual without joining up to a church. And, and listen, you're only halfway there. No, you're still saved. You're 100% saved if you're trusting in Jesus. If, if you're trusting in Jesus' death in your place to make you right with God, you're saved. But when it comes to your Christian growth, it doesn't matter how many sermons you listen to. It doesn't matter how many great Christian books you read. Without the accountability and love you receive from other people growing, despite their mistakes and despite their failures, and becoming more like Jesus, then there's a huge part of God's grace that you're missing out on. If you're a Christian and a member of this church, then really my question for you is this. Are you helping our church be a Christ-centered community? I want to be clear. I'm not saying that, that our church isn't Christ-centered. I believe it is. That's one of the reasons I'm so happy to be here. But whatever, to whatever degree that, our, that fellowship is a Christ-centered church, are you helping it in that direction? Or, or really, are you detracting from that? Are you helping this church grow in how centered it is around Jesus? Well, then I have a few questions to help you diagnose that. Number one, does Jesus' peace have the last word in your conflicts? Does Jesus' peace have the last word in your conflicts? Now, you may say, well, I've just been able to kind of avoid conflicts because I only have invested in relationships and I only hang out with people that are just like me in the church and I've avoided anyone uh, that there may be any tension with. Well, as comfortable as that might sound, it's okay for there to be a little conflict. It's okay for there to be a little tension. If you, I want you to think about it this way and challenge you. If, you. if you've stayed in a very small circle of friends, first of all, you should be grateful for those friends that God has brought into your life. But if you're in this church and you've stayed in a, in a very small circle of friends, and if you're worried that I'm thinking about you specifically, I'm not. I don't know you that well, okay? So if I, if I offend you, it's totally on accident. Listen, if you stay in that small circle of friends and refuse to test the waters and develop a relationship with anyone that may ever offend you or may ever cause a problem, you'll never get to see the peace of Christ in action. You'll never know what it's like for there to be this unnatural relationship with another Christian in the church and for there to be a conflict and for it to end up being okay and the only person you can give credit to is Jesus. You'll always miss out on that as long as you stick to your circle. And it's an amazing thing to watch. To watch the peace of Christ come in as an umpire and do what you and I cannot do. Number two is, is Jesus' message at home in your soul? 
Is Jesus' message at home in your soul? Is engaging with Scripture a priority in your life? And I guess really just at the baseline level, I could ask, do you read your Bible? There's more to it than that, but there's, it's not less than that. I don't just mean knocking it off a list or going over a couple verses and, and, and then, you know, going out and doing the rest of, spending the rest of your day doing what you really want to do. But what I'm saying is, do you really live in the Bible? Do you engage Scripture and let it fill you? Do you let it fill you? Because it's an amazing thing when it does. And you'll know because, you know, if you've ever carried buckets of water out of, out of a basement that's been flooded, that's not the greatest experience ever. But if you've ever done that, you know that your bucket is full when your feet are wet, right? If Jesus' message, if the word, if scripture is at home in your soul, you will find it spilling on to other people. You'll think of encouraging verses to give people when they're discouraged because you've been reading those verses. When, when one of your friends or one of, somebody in your family or someone you're close to or someone in your connection group is, is telling you things and you realize they're forgetting the gospel, you'll be able to tell them, hey, you need kindly and gently, hey, you need to remember the gospel. You need to have hope. You need to have confidence. And here's why. Well, how, how can you do that? If you are thinking about the gospel, you'll be able to do that. And not just teaching, but warning. Not not before you pull the stuff out of your own eyes. Jesus talks about that. But, But as you, as scripture makes a home in your heart, as Jesus' message is more and more indwelling your soul, you'll find yourself lovingly warning other Christians. Because I know this is a shocker. Other Christians make mistakes and they sin. Well, you make mistakes, you sin. Would we expect anything else? So you'll find yourself teaching them and, and warning them. And then this is, this is practical. As scripture indwells you, you'll sing in church. I mean, I, this, this is just very down to earth. This is rubber on the road. When you come into service and we sing the songs, you should sing with us. It doesn't matter if you have on your own a, a, great, uh, a great voice or not. That's totally beside the point. We live in a culture where we can only think of music in, in terms of entertainment. Paul's not talking about entertainment at all. Now, one of the ways I think that you can teach and admonish each other is, is by being involved in special music. And the people here that do that are incredibly gifted. And I'm thankful for it. And that encourages me. But not everyone will be able to do that. And here's the thing. Even if you can't do that, even if you can't do that, you can still sing. You may never do a solo in the choir. You may never get asked to sing with the Grand Sisters. I've been here two weeks and I haven't been. I don't know why that is. But you can sing. And there's just something... That builds your faith when you're at church and you're surrounded by these voices reminding you of the promises of God. 
And isn't it interesting that Paul not only links it up to teaching, but even links it up to admonishing, which is warning. It's as if when we sing to the Lord, but for each other, we're actually warned in some sense. I think it's like this. Is it possible that as we, as we are encouraged by the corporate music in our church, is it possible that that makes sin less appealing? Is it possible that it makes the rebellion in our hearts less appealing when we are surrounded by people that we are brothers and sisters in Christ singing about the goodness of God? I don't know how it warns us, but Paul seems to think that it does. You can have a part in that. You can be one of those voices that's teaching and admonishing the rest of us. So sing in church. Sing in church. Is Jesus' name, third question, then then we're done. Is Jesus' name behind everything you do? Now, I don't just mean every time you go out and do something, you say, I'm doing this in Jesus' name. I mean, you, you can do that. And maybe missing the point. To live in Jesus' name means you see your your whole life, just the totality of it, as part of your service to Jesus. That, That your mission in life is to make much of his name, not your own name. So so at the end of the day, it's not just what people think about me and whether or not people like me and whether or not people think I'm something special, but at the end of the day, my my ultimate concern ought to be this, and your ultimate concern ought to be this. How can I make much of Jesus? And and that is to be our motivation as a church, as we evaluate different things, as we participate in activities, as we volunteer for a ministry, we're asking, if I I jump into this, if I spend some of my time doing this, will this, will this make much of Jesus? That should be the question that we ask. Not not just is it comfortable to volunteer and serve and and do I really want to go to church tonight. Not just that, but can I make much of Jesus by doing this? That's to be our motivation. One way to tell if you live life in Jesus' name is to evaluate how you handle disappointment and discomfort. Paul has a great example of this. Philippians 1.21 He's not, he's not just being mellow. He's not just being blue. He has told them, it's very possible I may go to the chopping block, like within the next few days. And here's what he says. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To us, that may be a catchy phrase, but think about what that means. If I live my life, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make Jesus known. And Paul is also saying, and if they kill me and I can't live a life to make Jesus known because I have to die, then I am confident and hopeful that my death will make Jesus known. So whether they let me live or whether they kill me, I'm going to do everything for Jesus' name. So when something disappoints you, when something unexpected happens, when something comes across your desk that you didn't want, how do you respond to that? Are you, are you asking you know what, maybe, maybe I can still make much of Jesus in this. Or are you just focused on living a life for your own comfort and status? 
Christ-centered living should be especially lived out in Christ-centered community. My challenge is this. Does, does your participation in the life of Fellowship Baptist Church make it more Christ-centered or less Christ-centered? Now, I know that can sound very uh, harsh and maybe even guilt-inducing, but I don't want to motivate you with guilt. That's not my desire at all. Not only is it not my desire, that would be totally missing the point of the text. Because look with me at the end of verse 17. In fact, let's take that second half of verse 17 and, and read it out loud. Paul's not motivating them by guilt. Let's read this out loud. Giving thanks to God and the Father by him. All of what Paul is calling us to do is to be an act of gratitude. Let peace rule your conflicts because of how good God has been to you. Let the word indwell your soul because of how good Jesus has been to you. Let Jesus' name be your motivation in all that you do because look at what he has given you. So here's what what I want us to do tonight. Let's just get before God and, and do this. Let's thank him for what we have in Jesus. Let's tell God thank you. And after and only after you tell God thank you, let's ask for his help to be a Christ-centered church where our lives are ruled by his peace, indwelled by his message, and motivated by his name. Let's all stand. Father.